If your toddler has been diagnosed with autism or is waiting for a diagnosis, you're going to want to pay attention for the next 60 seconds. Happy Ladders is parent-led early autism therapy that empowers you, the parent, to teach your toddler essential developmental skills through play. Studies have shown that the parent-led model is highly effective while eliminating frustration over long wait lists or the worry about losing precious developmental time, all without the disruption of people coming into your home. Happy Ladders includes activities that target 150 essential developmental skills every toddler needs, as well as assessments in four different developmental areas. There's also an exclusive community of parents just like you and professional coaching to ensure success for both you and your toddler. To learn more, get a free trial, and take advantage of an exclusive limited-time offer for my listeners, visit happyladders.com. That's H-A-P-P-Y-L-A-D-D-E-R-S. Use the code THEAUTISMDAD at checkout to save 50% off the monthly membership. Plus, get a free one-on-one session as well as access to the Tantrums and Meltdown mini course. This is a limited time offer, so act now. If your toddler has been diagnosed with autism or is waiting for a diagnosis, you're going to want to pay attention for the next 60 seconds. Happy Ladders is parent-led early autism therapy that empowers you, the parent, to teach your toddler essential developmental skills through play. Studies have shown that the parent-led model is highly effective while eliminating frustration over long wait lists or the worry about losing precious developmental time, all without the disruption of people coming into your home. Happy Ladders includes activities that target 150 essential developmental skills every toddler needs, as well as assessments in four different developmental areas. There's also an exclusive community of parents just like you and professional coaching to ensure success for both you and your toddler. To learn more, get a free trial, and take advantage of an exclusive limited-time offer for my listeners, visit happyladders.com. That's H-A-P-P-Y-L-A-D-D-E-R-S. Use the code THEAUTISMDAD at checkout to save 50% off the monthly membership. Plus, get a free one-on-one session as well as access to the Tantrums and Meltdown mini course. This is a limited-time offer, so act now. Welcome to the Autism Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Gorski, and today my guest is Dr. Jeff Selman. He is the VP of Clinical Services for First Children's Services, and he's here to talk about how COVID is impacting the diagnosis process for kids being evaluated for, for autism specifically. If you're not familiar with the process, it can be a very lengthy process to begin with, but there's also a wait list. Oftentimes there's a wait list. That wait list can range from six months to a year, sometimes more, sometimes less. And, and it's, a, it's a global issue. It's, it's difficult to get a kid evaluated pretty much anywhere in the world. With COVID, that introduced further delay because you have facilities closing down, you have schools shut down, you have uh, remote learning, you have uh, you know, a lot of services have been uh, stopped or, or paused because of COVID and the pandemic. How is that impacting our kids? If a child does not get the diagnosis, oftentimes it means they can't get the services and supports that they need to thrive and to develop and to move forward in, in life. It's harder to level a playing field. It's harder to get things like IEPs and supports uh, in the classroom. And so it is a problem. And it's something that I hadn't really thought about until this conversation, actually. The other thing we're going to talk about is remote learning, the impact that remote learning is having on our kids and something that I hadn't really thought about, but how are we going to transition our kids back to the classroom? Our kids thrive on structure and routine and predictability, and it's going to be a massive change to go from learning at home to learning in the classroom. Whether your kids want to go back or not, it's still going to be a massive adjustment. How do we manage that? You know, what kind of allowances are we going to make for kids? What kind of period of time are we going to give them to adjust? And there's a lot of things we have to think about. I know we're all in a rush to get our kids back and we want to do it safely, but there's a lot of things that I don't know that we've thought about. It's a fascinating conversation. I think you're all going to learn a lot. I encourage you to stick around. I'll be right back after this quick commercial break. And we're back. And today, my guest is Dr. Jeff Selman. He is the VP of Clinical Services for First Children's Services. And we're here to talk about a couple of uh, autism-related, I guess, challenges would be a good way to describe that at this point. Can you, well, first of all, thank you for taking the time to be here. I appreciate that. Of course. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. My name is Jeff Selman, and I'm a licensed psychologist and a board-certified behavior analyst, certified school psychologist. So I got my initial training in both clinical psychology and school psychology. And then I, uh, after my postdoc in uh, psychology, I finalized and finished up my, my BCBA. So um, uh, in July, I was hired, and that was over 10 years ago now. So in July, I was hired by First Children's Services to be their VP of Clinical Services. 
What is First Children's Services? What do they do? And where, well, I guess, where are they located? Well, First Children's Services is a unique company. First of all, I think one of the most uh, important pieces is that it's a family-owned, family-focused company. And, you know, that's, you've heard that line, I'm sure, plenty, but, I mean, they live and die that, all the way from the president and the CEO, who father and son, uh, the focus is always on working with and, and helping kids and families. It's a behavioral health and special education services company. So we have several different lines of, of services. One is we provide autism services for kids and their families, and we'll talk about that. Uh, we provide clinic-based care. We provide school-based uh, ABA. We provide home-based ABA. Uh, and then we provide a number of other clinical and diagnostic services uh, as it relates to autism. Then we also have a private school, uh, and we're in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. We have a private school in Northern Jersey that is specialized for kids with comorbid developmental and medical conditions, so medically fragile, developmentally delayed kids. Uh, who may also have hearing impairment. So it's a very specialized program where public schools will send their kids who need to be served in this environment. And then we also have a mental health division, specifically a program for middle school and high schoolers who uh, suffer from school anxiety and school refusal, who for multiple reasons cannot go to their public school. So the public school will send them to one of our centers to get both educational and counseling services. So a number of different services, we integrate many of them, and we're in uh, throughout New Jersey and in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. Wow. That's a lot. Yes. It's taken me a long time to get that all in one breath. So that was a rehearsed, you know, with multiple takes kind of, kind of, kind of go, but yeah, it, it is a lot. It's a complex organization, but I'll tell you, as complex as it sounds, the, the mission is, is consistent across, uh, whether it be working with staff, working with families. It's, uh, you get that family-focused, collaborative feel. It's a very, very cool place to work. That's really cool. And I, I've noticed there are so many things that stem from New Jersey. That's, that's like the epicenter for, for all of these autism-based sort of organizations. And I just find that, I find that fascinating. So you started in Jersey, and you're just kind of spreading into PA and plans to go further than that? or I think uh, the plan right now is to really solidify our model and continue to grow and go where the communities uh, with the greatest needs are. And in Pennsylvania, there's been a lot of shifts in insurance funding and just like in New Jersey, autism benefits and, and whatnot. So despite New Jersey and you know, a couple other states having a big uh, population of providers, populations of kids with autism, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done and a lot of kids who are underserved. So we're certainly positioning ourselves to, to, to help and be part of the answer. What are the age groups? Is there a, a cap? Yeah, we work with kids in our autism program. We work with kids uh, as young as 18 months uh, into young adulthood. Uh, and then as we continue to grow, I'm sure the adult population, certainly there's a need there. We're not there yet. Uh, siblings and providing assistance for siblings and families. So as long as we are helping the family and the communities, that's, that's the direction we go. Just on a side note, I think New Jersey is the highest per capita of autism diagnoses in the country. I think you're accurate with that. Uh, if not the, it's one of. I did my graduate training in, in New Jersey, and then I went down to Charleston, South Carolina. And of course, there's a, there's a lot of need down there. And I left New Jersey about 10 years ago. I knew some of the systems and supports that were there. And now that I'm back, there has been advancement. But I'll tell you, just like anywhere in the country, there is still a great need for services and for that diagnostic piece, too. And speaking of the diagnostic piece, one of the things that we, I, I wanted to talk about with you was you know, COVID has been impacting, well, COVID is impacting everybody across the globe at this point. And it, and it hadn't really occurred to me, but the impact that the delay of kids being diagnosed with autism as a result of COVID shutdowns or lockdowns or, you know, additional, I mean, there's wait lists 
a mile long for a lot of places anyways. How has or has COVID had an impact on that? Yeah, certainly. Like you said, you know, COVID has had an impact on on everything. And uh, one piece, just to put it into context, there were ridiculous waiting lists for diagnostic testing well before COVID. So anywhere from, I don't know, I'll, I'll be... Uh, anywhere from six months to 20 month waiting lists for kids to be diagnosed with autism. And in a lot of medical university, um, you know, hospital based systems, they stop diagnosing or stop taking patients uh, around three, three and a half years old. Uh, and we know that the national average kids are getting diagnosed by four and a half. And that is a critical, critical window of time. So now that you have COVID, you have um, uh, certain uh, providers and hospital systems that uh, are not necessarily either equipped to have kids come into their office uh, to get uh, diagnostic evaluations. We have providers who may not be comfortable because of COVID to work under those conditions. Uh, certainly, our surveillance of kids who are showing signs and symptoms has decreased because they're not in schools. So uh, yes, COVID has impacted an already big problem uh, when it comes to identifying kids uh, with autism. How do we resolve that? Is there a solution to that? Is it, is it just a lack of providers to do the diagnosis? Like, like normally, you know, prior to COVID, yeah. Is it just a lack of services or, or a lack of professional you know, facilities that, that do that? Yeah, I think you, you can start peeling the onion, right? Like first, there aren't enough people out there doing the work. Not enough licensed psychologists who are doing diagnostic testing, doing diagnostic testing of kids with autism, and then doing those early pediatric screening and evaluations. That is number one. Uh, number two access to those services is limited. One of the reasons why there's such a long waiting list is kids and families needing to use their insurance. So you add that layer, not all providers who uh, psychologists take insurance. And then we have this enormous backlog at the, at the hospital-based systems. But there are solutions, Rob. You know, we have put in place tele-evaluations to at least get the system started. We have uh, psychologists who have equipped their offices and themselves with the PPE and the things that make sure that we're doing things in a safe, responsible way. Because again, we have a critical window where kids need to get their services, but even those kids who fall outside of that window, we know that the, the rate of comorbid mental health problems that can arise as they get older without getting the services they need increases exponentially. So we want to be able to identify as many kids as we can and get them linked up with services. Do you think, and this just occurred to me as you were, you were talking about this, when my kids were diagnosed, I remember specifically with my youngest, there was a lot of observational based things and they were interactioned, you know, they were interacting with him playing and they would, you know, see how he reacted to certain things. If, if you were to put him going back in time, if, if I were to put him in a room, make him wear PPE or try to make him wear PPE, and have a, have a doctor that's wearing a mask, which would probably scare the life out of him. I would think that would even, that, that would have an influence on the process itself. Such an excellent point. So a couple of, a couple of things I'd say about that. One is we use the term gold standard when it comes to evaluations, right? Especially when we talk about a tool called the autism diagnostic observation schedule, the ADOS2. Um, the other gold, which is a play-based observation, communication, um, testing battery that pulls for symptoms of autism. But the other gold standard part of our assessment is the clinical interview. And what do the parents and, or caretakers have to say about the child's behavior and developmental milestones and developmental history and all those things? So that is, that is something we, we need to lean into a bit more. But the other thing is, you know, we've seen, especially in our clinics uh, and, you know, taking a look around, kids are starting to get more and more used to folks wearing masks. And if the psychologist has a mask on or a face shield 
and they're able to have enough space, we do the best we can with the child in wearing a mask. Uh, they can't wear it, they can't wear it, uh, but at the very least, we can get some observational data, other forms of data, and then certainly the interview. Yeah, I just wonder because I, when you when you try and have like as controlled of an environment as possible, and you're trying to sort of replicate what the kid is dealing with in everyday life. I mean, I guess that would be accurate with the kids. I mean, because kids are going to be exposed to masks and have to wear masks. And anyhow, I just thought that was. I wondered if that would have a negative impact on the ability to evaluate. My oldest, who's 21 now, did uh, neuropsych testing up at the Cleveland Clinic. The first time was. I don't know, 15 years ago, they only were able to complete so much of the testing because he just, he wouldn't cooperate. And so they were only able to go so far. And I was just wondering if the same, if you run into the same thing with a kid being, trying to be diagnosed with, with autism, if there's only so much you can do, if you have to see certain things, or if they're taking into account that there's sort of outside influence that could be complicating the process, or maybe the kid could be acting in a way that they normally wouldn't. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it, it does. I mean, we deal with, you know, even before COVID, kids had to wear masks and things. We had to, sometimes we have, well, let's face it, not every kid is going to present fully cooperative for a, a one to three hour testing session, right? So we're trained to kind of lean into that, understand these variables, and we do the best we can, uh, whether it be with breaks or or mixing in preferred activities with with more challenging tasks, and we want to make sure there's strong rapport. Uh, but you're right; sometimes we have to do an abbreviated assessment or an adapted assessment so we can get all the information we need to make a a reliable, you know, diagnosis. And sometimes there's going to be barriers, but we have to be quick on our toes. We have to be creative, and we have to work with the family so we can get the information we need to help them along. It sort of reminds me of remote learning, which has been a nightmare for us. The teachers are doing the best they can in an, in an almost impossible situation. And it sort of feels like you guys who are doing these evaluations would be in a similar place. You have to kind of adapt and do the best you can. And it's maybe not going to be what it normally would be, but it's still under the circumstances as good as we can do. Yeah. Rob, like I say to families, sometimes when it comes to, to treatment and to doing regular therapy with parents, so they can help their kids. When you do parent training, we're not living in a, in a lab here. We're in the, the real world, natural setting stuff. We might have the most beautiful procedure in place, but then when they bring the child to the grocery store or they're trying to get them to go from the television to the, to the bathroom to brush their teeth and then to bed, well, they're not going to, you could follow all the steps. You may not always get the best results. So we have to really lean in and get creative too and think on our toes. So when it comes to testing, it's not always perfect. Uh, no matter how standardized our instruments, there are other factors that are going to be at play here. But that's all data. That's our observations of what's going on. And so the more data you collect, the more accurate your diagnosis could be. Right. And there are other forms of of data collection. There's rating scales. There's screening measures, there's uh, getting teacher perceptions, talking with the family, getting other type. There's, a, there's more to a, uh, an evaluation than, you know, one single tool. Have you noticed, just since we're on the topic of COVID, are, are there any other challenges that you're, you're seeing that families uh, with autistic kids are facing right now? I know I mentioned like remote learning. It's a necessary evil at this point for us. But it is it is just a, a horrible thing. <laughs> the experience has not been very good. Are you seeing that trend as well? Or yes, it's not very common. I'll put I'll, I'll be diplomat. It's not too common that you hear from a, a family like, "Yes, this is going best thing great. ever." <laughs> oh, this, I, I would prefer this. You should have yeah, done this years no. ago. <laughs> it's so for a, a a neurotypical child in a family. Uh, a traditional family, they're having struggles. A uh, child with autism has a whole other set of, as you know, needs that go into their academic instruction, their engagement, uh, their frustration tolerance, everything from uh, the type of instruction to the type of supports. How do you approximate that or, or recreate that in your home in front of a screen? What a challenge. Uh, so yes, uh, I think that for some kids, it's about how do we 
how do we reduce any potential for regression, right? Uh, how do we continue to move the needle? How do we collaborate with parents? How do we support the families? That is the, a big, big key that we found, uh, especially in our Fanwood school where we have kids who are medically and uh, developmentally complex. The more parent training and support we provided, uh, the better the outcomes for the kids. So yes, to a long answer to your question, yes, those trends are common for us too. It's, so it's not, it's not just me. Sometimes I feel like sometimes I feel like it's just me. <laughs> no, it's, no, you're like a, you're like a case study here. Uh, very unusual experience you're having. <laughs> you know, I, I've talked about this a bunch of times, but when they they shut the schools down in March of last year, and then it went to like this hybrid version of learning, which was a disaster, and then it just went fully remote for this current school year. What was what I think was the most disruptive for my kids was we had a routine at home and they have a routine at school. And by shutting the school down, you have now disrupted their home routine because everything is now at home. Trying to replicate the routine that they have at school at home is I have it's been a year. I haven't figured it out yet. And then you, you have to then develop a new routine for home and then try and separate the school day from the home time, because like kids on the spectrum, kids with ADHD, kids that are struggling with, with learning disabilities, school is an exhausting yes. you know, experience throughout the day. And when they come home, they need to be able to kind of shut that away and just be at home and recover and get back on their feet and just sort of decompress. When you merge those two environments together, especially with parents like with me who have no teaching experience, I mean, I, I, I can't even follow the way they're doing like common core math. And so I'm not even able to help in a lot of, a lot of situations that's frustrating for me. And it, it's just this debacle and you know, they're teasing that we might be going back next, next quarter, fourth quarter, they might be opening up again. I won't send my kids back maybe in the fall after we all get vaccinated, but, but it is, it, it, then it's going to be the same thing going back to the school. They're going to have to reestablish a routine and in, in all the processes at school. And, and then we're going to have to reestablish something at home. I mean, it's just a very difficult, and anybody who has autistic kids knows routines are not easily uh, established. Life is very disrupted when those are thrown out of whack or they get off of their routine. Yeah. Do you have any advice? Yeah. I, I think that you nailed on a couple of really important themes. And one of which is how do you set a, a schedule or a, um, a routine for your for your child uh, that is in this very unpredictable time as predictable as it can get one that you can rehearse and reinforce uh, have it visual if needed um, where that that's one that's interspersed with you know breaks uh, or more preferred, activities in between those those less preferred um you know one of the things that i know that a lot of families have had a challenge with with the virtual school is that especially kids on the spectrum those sensory needs need to be uh incorporated into their day they need opportunity for movement breaks like all kids but especially kids um with autism, more opportunities for movement, more opportunities for for breaks, um, more ways to to facilitate communication if they need help, uh, and very likely some type of reinforcement system. Because you're absolutely right, this is a lot of work. It's very effortful. But Rob, the the big theme is what do we do to help parents navigate this? Because I can't figure out that math either. I'm building trees from a basic math problem with my son, and I'm lost too. And he's in second grade. Like, I, I, I'm like, I don't get it. Uh, I was doing advanced math in grade school, so I, I was, and it was like a extra credit kind of challenge thing. So I loved math. The way that they are doing math now makes absolutely no sense to me. And it's simple math. Like I can give you the answer. I just can't give you the answer the way they want you to get it. So like I can help you kind of halfway, but I, but I can't help you beyond that. And it's frustrating for them. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating for me. Cause I feel like 
I mean, failure because it's like basic math. I, I should be able to help my kids with basic math, but I'm not a teacher and I'm certainly not a special education teacher. And, you know, trying to work from home and keep my kids safe from all of the COVID related issues and trying to practice on their, their emotional health and well being, which is just taking a huge nosedive. It's a whole other show. Yeah. Yes. You know, my kids used to, my kids are very, um, they're very outgoing and they like social engagement. So, so I'm, I think I'm lucky in that sense. Cause a lot of, a lot of autistic kids don't, but they are, the isolation has been very, very difficult for them. Yes. And it, you know, I don't, I don't know what we're going to do. There's going to have to be a reset button when all of this is done and we get to the other side of this, because do you, do you pass kids, you know, just because they, they met the minimum requirements of remote learning? Do they actually qualify to go from seventh to eighth grade or do you hold them back? Yeah. I mean, like, I don't, I don't know, especially kids with, with learning disabilities. I don't know how you navigate that. Right. Right. Uh, it's a great systemic question, uh, philosophical question. And I'll tell you, I mean, at the end of the day, these kids are coming back to school eventually. When they do come back to school, they will have experienced something none of us have experienced. This, this it has to be now, um, they need to be brought back with this as part of their schooling experience. And whatever arbitrary um, criteria that was set by I don't know who for them to get to a certain place academically may need to be put on pause to get these kids socially and emotionally and behaviorally back to school with this new experience behind them and reacclimate to the day to day of what school quote unquote should be. Uh, the academics, I know that there's going to be some folks whose ears are going to burn when I say this might just have to come second. That's been my approach. Uh, you know, people are like, well, aren't you upset? Your kids aren't learning. Well, you know what? Like, of course I'm upset. I, I value their education. I think it's vitally important. My kids are less prone to regression than I think other families. So I, I have a little bit of breathing room there. But if we survive COVID, we have time to make it up. We have time to play catch up. If, if I try and force something before it's safe, just because I'm concerned about prioritizing their education, I may have that opportunity taken away. You know, they may get sick or someone else might get sick. And as important as their education is, I have no idea what we're going to do. My goal is just to survive this and transitioning back into the school building is going to be scary for one thing, because we've been telling them it's not safe for so long. They get that stuck in their head and they generalize everything. How are we going to convince them that it's actually safe to go back? There's a, you start pulling these threads and it, the whole thing unravels. You just mentioned something that, you know, it really resonates and it connects to something you said earlier. You're in survival mode. You know who else is in survival mode? Folks who have anxiety. Think about all the anxiety that kids have right now, adults have right now, uh, because we don't know what's in front of us. It's very unpredictable. Our routines are, are totally upside down. And you mentioned earlier just the social emotional well-being of your kids. That's that's a like I said, a whole other show. We're seeing rates of anxiety and depression like four to five times what it was prior to COVID and prior to the quarantine. And it was already a uh, a public health crisis. The suicide rate for students has gone through the roof. The suicide rate. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so like as as a parent. And I, and I guess I never really intended for us to take this whole path, but I think it's important really, because as a parent, a lot of us are sitting here trying to decide what we're supposed to do because you know, you're balancing having to work versus being home with your kids. You're balancing like right now I've had to ensure that my, my kids stay away for the half hour, 45 minutes or an hour that we're doing this, but that's time that I'm taking away from them, making sure that they're getting caught up on their schoolwork, which I can promise you they're not right now. Uh, they're not that self-motivated. And it's just this constant balancing act that you just can't, it's constant triage. Like what's the most important thing in the moment? Yeah. And if they're stressed out and they're overwhelmed because 
the uh, the connection to the Chromebook is unstable, so they can't hear their teacher, but they might be able to see them, but there's no voice. Or they have to wait. You know, they're in this, they live in this generation of instant gratification where a website takes 10 seconds, 20 seconds to load up. Okay, that's still way faster than what it used to be, right? If it doesn't instantly load up, they think it's broken. And then any hiccups or glitches or anything that pops up along the way just derails things further and increases the frustration and the anxiety, like you said. And it just becomes this, at what point do we just say, like, look, enough is enough. Like, we can keep doing this so that they meet your arbitrary requirements for attendance or whatever, but not at the expense of, like, how, how, what's the price we're willing to pay? Right. Because it is so much stress on these kids. I mean, I, I don't know what we do. I don't know what we do. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I will say this. Well, let me get to that in just a second. For us at, at, at First Children, we have a, uh, we have a built out model for uh, specifically for kids with autism and their families. And we have um, and the, some of the answers that you're, you're referencing I'm going to get to. Um, we have the diagnostic piece. Then we also have, of course, ABA is, is always going to be part of it for those kids who, who require ABA. But we have a whole mental health continuum within that service line where kids, adolescents, young adults, their parents, family members, are able to siblings are able to access mental health services, counseling, you know, how to deal with the anxiety, how to deal with depression, how to deal with, you know, some of those comorbid ADHD symptoms. Um, whereas it's kind of hard to find, in my experience, it's hard to find providers who are able to integrate all of those components into the, the treatment or the care of the child and the family. So if a parent is feeling uh, additional stress, now, especially under this time, how do we teach the parent coping skills in order to best help their child? How does a child who is ruminating or very anxious, who also happens to have autism, by the way, which the rates of anxiety and autism is, is also much higher than I think most people realize. How do we deal with anxiety and teach coping skills and for those children uh, so they can be more present for instruction or be more present with peers or uh, be able to get back into school? One of those fears that you have, are they going to be ready and able? I think that the some of the answers fall on practitioners, providers to be innovative and provide evidence-based care for kids who, who need it and not just stay within their little box. The other thing I was going to say is I, I tend to be optimistic in this. And I, I mean, I've been practicing for, for a good bit and I, I've seen some real, real tough cases my way, but I tend to feel that kids are resilient. They're, they can be adaptable. And a lot of times they surprise us. Uh, they're not, sometimes, most of the time, they're not as fragile as I think we assume them to be. Now, that's not to minimize some of the real struggles that a lot of kids have and will have, but I think that they're going to surprise us. I, I would agree with that. I remember when my youngest was diagnosed, he was nonverbal. They told us that he would never talk, that he would, uh, we had to learn sign language because they told us he was deaf uh, or hearing impaired. And it wasn't until we were just, they were working on the final diagnosis of his hearing impairment where they do an ABR test where they sedate him and put the electrodes on and just process sound. Turns out he was just ignoring us for three years. <laughs> he just tuned everything out. He didn't react to anything. We were learning sign language and everything just to try and find ways to communicate with him, to open up those doors of communication. And one day he just started talking. They told us that would never happen. We always had faith in our, our son that if someone's going to do it, it's going to be him, right? We just, we keep trying. We don't give up. We keep moving. But I think you're right. I, I, I think that a lot of our kids or most of our kids or all of our kids will surprise us, at least to some extent. Yeah. We're envisioning this. Well, I'm envisioning this sort of nightmare scenario of trying to make this transition back. And maybe there's some muscle memory. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and they can get back and just kind of slip right back into that routine. And Rob, like a lot of things when it comes to kids, let's, let's make sure the adults figure it out. Let's have a plan. You know, let's have a system in place for getting these kids back and back safely and in and, and good health and, 
and set up our system so they can be successful. What we've seen, and I am, I could never do what our educators do. They're amazing. Uh, but I, I can't help but feel like this disjointedness that's occurring when it comes to getting kids back to school and the variability. I wish we could do better. I'll, I'll leave it at that. There needs to be more of a coordinated effort instead of... That's a very good way to put it, Rob. Thanks. More coordinated. Yeah, because it's... Sustainable effort. There's even, even county to county, it's different, you know, based on the amount of infections in that moment. In that moment, we're chasing data that's two weeks old. So by the time we get the kids back into school, two weeks later, we find out that it's not safe anymore and we got to pull them back out. Right, right. And everybody's doing their own thing because there was no centralized, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to find a way that sort of applies across the board and then we can customize it to unique situations if we need to. But here's the standard that's safe. We're going to base it on science and medicine, and then we just go from there and, and build off of that what we need to. But that's certainly, certainly not the case. And I think that complicates things. Yes, it does. And it's confusing for families too. I mean, I talked to one friend who's got his kids in a, in a you know, they're, they're, they live in a nice area and his two daughters have gone to school every day, except for a half day on Wednesdays. And maybe they've had two closings because of quarantine, right? They've had somebody was infected. But every day they've been going to school. I talked to colleagues in Newark who they're those kids haven't been in school since last February. And you see where I'm going with this. And in my town that I live in, we're always vacillating between remote, hybrid. It's it's very confusing. And then the disparity. Yep. Uh and that gap for those kids who live in urban areas, uh, kids who have more disadvantage because of socioeconomics, some of those kids haven't been in school or even received instruction in, in months, whether it be because of, of absenteeism or poor internet connection. It's it's a real mess, and it's and it's really it's sad, and it obviously creates a lot of stress for everyone. And as hard as it is for the neurotypical kids, the kids with autism or ADHD or other learning disabilities, it's infinitely more challenging for them. Oh, yes. And we can't have a, it's bad enough in the real world in normal circumstances without COVID. There was a lot of one size fits all approaches to things, state testing, all that stuff, which I think is ridiculous. They were trying to do state testing for my kids remotely. I mean, at what point do we just say, okay, you know what guys, like we're just going to hold off on the pointless state testing at this point because nothing that is done uh, educationally during COVID is going to be an accurate representation of what a child is capable of. This is not them at their potential. Teachers are doing everything they possibly can. They don't have the support. They don't have the, the funding or the technology or the backing. And it's just, it's just this disaster. And I don't know what the other side of this is going to look like, but I'm hoping it's not worse than what we're dealing with now because that would be a basement for rock bottom. Right. Right. And, you know, just to loop it back around, you know, we were talking about diagnosis and whatnot, you know, in the schools, as you know, it's, it's, they're not diagnosing, they're, they're testing to see if they meet eligibility for special education services. And again, um, you know, those school psychologists out there, um, I don't know how they're doing it. There must be just backlogs of kids who need to be tested to see if they meet criteria for an IEP. And in these times, I just don't know how, well, I know how some of them are doing it, uh, but those kids who have unidentified learning needs and ADHD, like you said, and autism, not getting evaluated for even school-based services, let alone clinical services, another big, big problem. And I just want to say, I'll say this, and then I want to ask you about Strive. I know, especially as a special needs parent myself, I know how frustrating it can be when, you know, my kids don't get the, you know, the services and the assistance and the guidance that they might get when they're in the school building. I can't replicate that at home. I get that. I have accepted that. We don't need to take it out on the teachers because the teachers are the, they're receiving the, a lot of cases, they're, they're receiving the brunt of the frustration from the parents and it's not their fault. I mean, they're probably equally as frustrated, if not more because they want to be able to do things that they just can't. They can't interact with their kids unless it's through a screen. Absolutely. I hope that we can recognize that there are people I think we can be angry with that things got to this point, but it's not the teachers. 
I think they're sort of the unsung heroes of this whole nightmare. And, and I think it's important that we recognize that. Oh, you're, you're spot on. Absolutely. These, these folks did not go to get their degrees and get their training to do virtual school. Some of them maybe wanted to do the distance learning, but this was not in the cards for them. And I've had nothing but very positive experiences, not just with my kids, but consulting with schools, seeing what these folks do every single day. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And you're, and I, I would, I believe, uh, and I agree with you too, that they'd much rather be in the, the school. They'd much rather be going to the classroom, seeing their kids. This is their, this is what they love to do. This is their profession. So you're right. I mean, they don't do it for the money. We know that. I wish they were. Uh, yeah. I wish there was money for them. Yeah. So just, you know, pretty teachers out there who are listening, thank you for everything that you're doing to try and help us get through this. 100%. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it all out. I did want to touch base on, on Strive because I know that that's... Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit about what that is? Yeah. So we, we call it the Strive Autism Care Continuum. And what that is essentially is our autism services program. And Strive consists of several different components. One component, of course, is our diagnostic evaluation, psychological testing division, our autism diagnostic clinic, put it that way. For kids as young as two to young adult who there, has a, there is a question of whether or not they have autism. Our job is to meet with them and do any sort of testing that's necessary to either rule in or rule out autism. Um, one of the goals there, of course, is to, first of all, do it early, do it without extensive wait lists, and to provide access for kids and families who would otherwise be on these lengthy waiting lists. Part of what differentiates us is that we take insurance and we take Medicaid. It's nearly impossible to find a provider out there, a licensed psychologist taking Medicaid, who can provide a gold standard diagnostic evaluation for, for, their, for a child. So the other components of STRIVE are first the mental health counseling for kids who could participate in that. So whether it be cognitive behavior therapy or behavior therapy or or other evidence-based forms of, of counseling for kids who have comorbid, you know, ADHD, anxiety, depression, potentially trauma, uh, other types of social skill difficulties or behavioral difficulties. Uh, so they're getting direct clinical services. Their parents or caregivers are also getting family therapy, family counseling, uh, and that could be for emotional support. It could be for actual behavioral skills training so they can better help and generalize the skills the child is learning. And then we also have ABA, which is the most important probably for most kids to get. So we provide ABA, applied behavior analysis, in clinics, in homes, in schools, in the community. And we use an approach that is very naturalistic. So rather than the traditional sitting at the table doing discrete trial, we do uh, things like pivotal response training. We put kids in very natural environments and provide ABA through their day-to-day -day interactions. So I will add just a couple other points. One is we put a heavy emphasis on working with the family and collaborating and um, helping parents. Uh, the other is we open it up to uh, siblings and we provide a number of sibling support groups individual counseling for the siblings. And then if a sibling is presenting with symptoms potentially of autism or another condition, we want to make sure that they get access to an assessment as well. That's really important what you just said. And I wanted to focus on that for a second. When my oldest was diagnosed with autism, I think it was 2005, that became my experience as to what autism was. So when my other two were born, we missed the symptoms of autism in them because we were so used to it being one way that we did not understand that they could present different ways. And so therapy for the siblings was one of the ways that we were able to figure out they were autistic themselves. And that's so important because there's so much focus put on the child with the most needs. Yes. That a lot of times kids with less needs still have needs and they can get lost in the shuffle or, or fall through the cracks. And 
when you said that you were offering that, I, d- I just wanted to, to point that out because that is so huge for families who are struggling to find balance and make sure that everybody gets what they need. Yes. So that, that's really cool that you guys do that. Yeah, thank you. The sibling support group is really cool. I've seen it run plenty of times and we get a group of kids together. They learn coping skills. They learn more about autism. They learn to celebrate their own uniqueness. And, you know, at the end, we have the the family join and the siblings join and, you know, have an, an ending, you know, it's like an eight week program. So yeah, we, you know, when we start off our clinical interview with the family, we don't do just a child centered clinical interview. We want to assess all the needs of the family. We want to know about parental stress. We want to know about siblings. We want to know about, you know, obviously the child and their history. But what we do is we map out a course, uh, best practice recommendations for services. Not every family is going to be able to start all of them, right? But we're always going to be assessing what is needed for that family. And we'll always come back to them and say, hey, listen, I know that three months ago you weren't ready to come in for your own counsel, but I'm, I'm thinking that it's going to really help move the needle on, you know, your son's treatment. Why don't you come in every other week? We'll start there. You know, so we really want to make sure that we are um, not just uh, providing services for the one child, but for, for everyone who needs it. Does that help with like parental burnout, like caregiver burnout? Oh, Certainly. You know, behavioral parent training and parent training is probably one of the most important components of treatment that is so underutilized. It's it's really working with parents so they understand not just the behavioral principles and how to increase good behavior and decrease challenging behaviors and take on some of the programming and and really feel empowered to, you know, work with their child who might have social or behavioral difficulties or emotional difficulties. But the other side of that is really working on their own resilience and coping skills. You know better than anyone how challenging it is to raise kids with autism or with special needs. And in order to do that, we have to make sure that we are well too. Parents so often put ourselves at the bottom of the totem pole, but listen, uh, sometimes it's it's good to have a consult here and there just to just to learn some new stuff. I have therapy every Wednesday. I think therapy is very, very important. I think it's very beneficial. It was tough for me a little bit because my wife at the time was in therapy. All of my kids were in therapy. As the dad, I felt like I had to just sort of power through it and be there to, to shoulder the burden for everybody else and carry that weight so that they can get through whatever it is that they're going through in that moment. And I'm going to tell you, that was a mistake. (laughs) That was a big mistake. Therapy is, especially with a good therapist, is so positive. People ask me all the time, like how I haven't lost my mind. We should qualify that a lot of my mind was lost along the way before this happened. But, uh, but you know, I think therapy and, and helping me be a better version of myself for my kids, to be able to give my kids uh, the best version of me that I can, and to forgive myself for not being able to meet all of their needs, because that's an impossible task. Yeah. On my best day, I am never enough to meet all of the needs of my kids. And I, for the longest time, beat myself up for that. And therapy is, is really, really important. And I, and I really like that you guys take this whole family approach, because it's not just the autistic kid. It's the whole family. It's a whole family that is impacted by behaviors or challenges or, you know, anything else that might, you know, come along as a result of a diagnosis. And the best way for that child to succeed is to have a family around them that is loving and supportive in in a place to be able to nurture and be patient and understanding. And if you spend yourself into the ground, you you can physically and emotionally bankrupt yourself and you have nothing left to give. And then we have caregiver burnout. Yeah. Again, Rob, your experience, what you're talking about is, is, is spot on. So common, uh, especially for dads, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of cultural, you know, we feel like we have to, like you said, plow through it. Like I'll take care of myself once they're cared for or once they get back under feet, then I'll worry about myself. Yeah. Yeah. And that's moms too, you know? Yep. Parents historically are going to put their kids well in front of them. And that 50 minutes between driving to the session and being in the session and driving home 
think about everything that can be done in that time. But there's a lot that's done in that time when you're with your therapist and you're with your psychologist or, or mental health clinician uh, that really is for the long run could be just so beneficial for everyone. It's sort of like getting a paycheck, right? Like every time you go to your therapist, you're, you're depositing money into your account yeah. and you're, you're putting back. Uh, my therapist had told me one time that you have to be selfish before you can be selfless. And that really stuck with me because it seems so counterintuitive because we feel like we have to put our kids first all the time. Like they come first no matter what, but that's not sustainable. It's, it's unrealistic. I know that I was guilty of that. I'm still guilty of that a lot of times, but I really, I, I try to be aware of self-care and, and I really, that's one of the focuses that I, I always, always harp on people about that. Yeah. Only because like the sooner you learn that in your journey as a parent or especially as a parent, the easier it's going to be to incorporate that into your daily life. Because once you're behind the eight ball and your mental health and your physical health has, has taken a turn because of just this unending stress and the lack of caring for yourself and putting yourself first, it's harder to recover from that than it would be just to take 15 minutes and, and go have a cup of coffee and read a book or yeah, I do these, right? There's times that I'll hide in the bathroom and just close the door and, and just, you know, go through my email. <laughs> Cause like if that door's closed, my kids think, Oh, he's, he's in the bathroom, but I'm just checking my email or I'm trying to get caught up on something. And, and that's just time that I spend for myself to kind of get myself away from everything that's right. You know, stressing me out or, 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 uh, challenging me, but it is, it's really important. I really like that you guys do that. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you saying that. You know, your your experience is uh, rich uh, examples of of why we do what we do. And I'll, I'll tell you, it's not just on the families to realize that we as a field have not done a good enough job. Now I can speak for both. I'm a psychologist and a BCPA, so I can shift teams every once in a while. But I would say, on the whole, we haven't done a good enough job educating families that indirect service for the child, meaning working with the parent or caregivers can lead to such great outcomes for the child. You know, a lot of families, it's like the first time they've heard that, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're not going to work with my child, you're going to work with me? Well, yeah, we have to teach you, we have to get you in a good place. So then we can, we could always transfer the skills to you and you can, we don't want to be with you forever. The other thing, Rob, that's that's unique to our model, which which is a which is a real good thing, is sometimes it takes a little while to get an ABA team assembled, a BCBA and the RBT, and and it might take you know three to six weeks uh, to get a team ready. So from that point of first interview to the ABA initiation, that could be about six or seven sessions with a specialist working with the parent or the child, and we may have already seen some gains by that. So, you know, I, I think your examples and your experience kind of speak to why I think it's just such a, a critical part of our, our model. One of the, the most profound lessons that I've learned along the way was when my oldest, uh, who's 21 now, started developing his health issues 10 years ago-ish. It got to the point where it was so bad that he ended up having a wish granted in 2017. And we, we drove from Ohio to Florida and we went to this place called Give Kids the World. And, you know, we thought we were going there for him, but what they're doing is you go there and they take care of the entire family, right? And so you don't need anything. We were down there for seven days. I think we were there and they make sure that there are activities for the siblings because they know that the siblings go through a hard time when they have a, a child with or, or a brother or sister with a terminal or a life-threatening health condition. They have things for the parents to help them just sort of take care of themselves or their marriage or their relationship with their partners or wh whatever the deal is. And that was the first vacation we had been on in, well, ever, actually. That was such an eye-opening experience because that was the first time that we actually took care of ourselves. And the difference that it made when we came back was was just so profound. And it And it's all things that we could be doing along the way but it took going somewhere and, and having it done for us, I guess, for us to kind of wake up and realize how important that is. And that's what reminds me of what you guys are doing, where you're, you're involving the families and you're making sure that everybody's cared for. Kids need their parents. And if the parents are falling apart or the parents are battling depression or whatever, and that goes undiagnosed or that goes untreated, they're only so good 
to the kids, you know? And so we, we, you have to build up the whole family. That's so important. I, I'm so glad to hear that you guys do that. Cause that's, that's so, that's such a cool thing. It really is. Well, thanks. This is a reflection of the, uh, the company, you know, uh, you, know, you hear that common thing, you know, family owned, family focused, family operated. We really are, you know, it's, uh, from Matt Hess and Joe Hess. Matt, uh, is the CEO. He's the son of Joe Hess, who's the president all the way down to our service providers. We look at the whole family and, and their needs, and we want to make a lasting change for the kids, for the families, for the communities they're in. And we can't do that with just the child. We, we really need to have partnerships to make these things uh, long lasting. So now is this, so thanks for recognizing that. You're welcome. I, I appreciate what you guys are doing. I, I wish that there were services like that available elsewhere. Can people access that online or is it more of an in-person local type? Oh, great question. We have virtual social skill groups for kids, but we are always talking about ways to leverage that virtual platform to reach more families. How do we provide the, the parent training and the parent support uh, along with other treatment modalities or ways to help the kids? So I think we've learned a lot in the last year on, on how to utilize this platform. Working with parents have shown really good outcomes through telehealth. So um, with the data that we've gathered and just the experience we've had, I wouldn't be surprised if we'd have more opportunities for that in, in other areas. Hmm. That's cool. I really appreciate your time, man. Like this, like, like I said, I, I hadn't intended to go off on the whole school COVID thing, but I, I think that it's really important. Like so many parents, so many kids are struggling right now and teachers are struggling right now. It just sort of took on a life of its own. So I, I appreciate you going down that rabbit hole with me. <laughs> all, all good. You know, this has been, this has been great. I, I really enjoy talking to you. How can people find you guys? Probably the best way is to um, go on our website, www.firstchildrenservices.com. Uh, you can call 888-966-0746. You can always email referrals at firstchildrenservices.com. And my email, and I'm always willing to chat with folks, uh, is jselman, J-S-E-L-M-A-N, at firstchildrenservices.com. I'll put all that stuff in the show notes so that you guys don't have, you don't have to remember that. I'll, you can just click on it. Um, I really appreciate that. I, I like that you guys are accessible and... Uh, but again, I really appreciate your time. I hope you stay safe. Yes, yeah, same to you. Have a good weekend and uh, to you. I'll be in touch, man. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Talk to you. Yep. Take care. Bye. Bye. Before I close things out today, I just want to say thank you to Jeff for taking the time to come on the show and you know talking to us about First Children's Services. I think they're doing amazing work. I really appreciate the approach that they have to it. I like the family kind of approach. I like the putting kids first approach. I think that's always important. But I also want to thank you for bringing some things to my attention that I hadn't really even thought about. And that was the delay in the diagnosis process. You know, that's that's such a huge problem. And I'm, I'm not sure how we address that. I mean, remove COVID for just a minute. It's shameful that our kids have to wait six months to two years to get a diagnosis. It's shameful. We need to do better. We know that early intervention is absolutely vital. And we are allowing way too much time to go by before we get our kids the help that they need. And that's just unacceptable. And we need to do better. I hadn't thought about transitioning my kids back into the classroom. I, I, I'd thought about it, but I hadn't really put too much thought into it because I was kind of wrapped up in just the now. There's going to be a huge transition going back to the classroom. If you're a parent to a kid on the autism spectrum, you know as well as I do, after a year of being home, it's going to be a big change to get back into the classroom. They're going to be used to doing things differently. It's going to be a significant change. And I don't know that we have thought about that. You know, we all want our kids back in the classroom. I want my kids back in the classroom. You know, we, we focus on safety things, wearing masks and making sure that, you know, they're safe from COVID, whatever. But there's basic things like how are they going to adjust? What kind of allowances are we going to make for these kids? What kind of time frame are we going to give them to adjust? Because they don't just adjust on our time frame. They adjust on their time frame. The more we push them, the more resistance we're going to get. So there's just a lot of things that we hadn't thought about. 
And I think it's important that we talk about this stuff. And I appreciate you bringing it up to me, Jeff. I, I think it's an important conversation. I would love to hear what you guys have to say. So leave a comment on the blog or, or shoot me an email. I, I would love to hear what you guys have to say or what, what your thoughts are on this, because I'm a little bit worried about how this is going to go. I'll have all of the information for Jeff and First Children's Services will be in the show notes below. So if you guys need to uh, get services with them, you can do so. You can find me at theautismdad.com. All my social links are at the top of the page. You can find this podcast on any one of your favorite podcasting apps. Just hit that subscribe button. I really appreciate that. And if you haven't done so already, please rate it. I would really appreciate that. The ratings help me to know what I'm doing right and doing wrong. Outside of that, I hope that you guys have a fantastic weekend. Stay safe, be smart, and I will talk to you guys next week. Thanks. Bye. Autistic kids can sometimes struggle to learn new skills such as riding a bike, reading, or simply having a conversation to a high level of proficiency and automaticity. Brainiac is a brain enhancement program that gets to the root of the problem. It builds stronger brain and body connections that elevate learning capacity within four to six months. Brainiac cross-trains motor movement, visual, auditory, and cognitive thinking connections using fun, interactive video games. Strengthened connections allow kids to learn new skills and perform them automatically with more confidence and greater independence. Brainiac is for homes and schools. Visit canoe.com, that's K-I-N-U-U.com, and be sure to use the code THEAUTISMDAT at checkout to save $500. It's a limited time offer and it will expire on May 31st.